we approach your throne now and we, we say, God, we, we're here to worship you, we're here to honor you, we're here to, to meet with you. Lord, we're not here to mess about. <laughs> Could do better things this afternoon, football's on. We're here to encounter you. So God, would you come now and speak, speak into our hearts, change our lives, make them be more of what they were made to be. Pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. You know me, I think you're getting there. Your voice is nearly as good as mine, I think. If anyone's ever hear, heard me saying, you'll know that nowhere near Beautiful, thank you guys. All right, uh, this afternoon we are back in our series, Heart and House, from 1 and 2 Samuel, and I'm delighted to say that um, Jonathan's going to be preaching with me this afternoon, so we're going to tag team, so about halfway through, I'll disappear, Jonathan will come up and um, finish our passage. We're in 1 Samuel 8, do turn there just now if you have a Bible with you, I'm going to read the verses in a moment, but just want to introduce kind of where we're at. This is, we're about to see the second uh, leadership crisis in a generation. We saw the first one when Eli's house was in a mess at the beginning of the book. His sons, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, were drunk on inherited power. And they were doing whatever they could do to get what they wanted out of their leadership positions. And actually, God did something in those early chapters, there is a pattern of God's. We might expect in a worldly sense, when there is a leader in place, we might expect uh, the powerful people to just assume their position of power and continue on in it. But not with God. God does quite the opposite. God uh, finds the people who you might think are extremely unlikely to be leaders. And uh, he finds uh, in this most unlikely of places, Hannah, this woman of God who had been rejected in society, had this huge stigma around her because she hadn't been able to have children and rejected by society. And yet she was the one who gave birth to Samuel and Samuel uh, Rose was dedicated to God and rose to become this priest, this judge, this prophet who really was at the heart of a kind of redemption of Israel in a really dire time in Israel's history. Samuel became this great man of God and he led Israel to godly success. Just think last chapter, last week, it was almost like revival. I mean, uh, Ebenezer... He led the people to rededicate their whole lives to God, to renew the covenant, to give their hearts in devotion to God. These half-hearted people who had been off with other gods, doing other things, and now here they are, giving themselves wholly to God. And at Ebenezer, they win this great battle against the Philistines. They raise this stone and they remember that God has been with them. What a moment. 
But now comes leadership crisis number two. Doesn't take long, does it? I reckon there's about 30 years between the battle at Ebenezer and the passage that we're about to read in 1 Samuel 8. And it seems that Samuel hasn't learned one of the most important lessons he could have learned from Eli. Eli's sons had let the power corrupt them and leadership for them was about taking, not serving. That for me is the key difference between godly leadership and worldly leadership. Godly leadership is about serving. Worldly leadership is about taking. Here we go again. Israel has no one who will lead the nation selflessly. So, decisions to be made. Decisions that need not only to be made with a strategic head, but a worshipful heart. And that is what we want to look at this afternoon. So, we're going to look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you're there already, we're starting in verse 1. I'm just going to read the first nine verses, then Jonathan will come up and read the rest when he preaches the rest of the passage. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Joel, not Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are not, uh, so they are doing to you, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Okay, before we get to why and how Israel make the decision that they do, Let's quickly look at one of the reasons that they end up in this leadership crisis. Verses 1 to 3, choose your impact. There was a 20-year gap in the run-up to the battle at Ebenezer, and now there's been a 30-year gap. And Samuel was an adult at Ebenezer, but there was no sign of his sons. And now you see his sons, and he's grown old. So there's been 30 years. So what's happened in that 30-year period? Well, we can see that at least two things have happened. He has, one Number one, he assumes that his sons will take on leadership instead of looking for God's choice. The second thing is that just like Eli, his leadership hadn't begun at home. He had led in Israel, but not necessarily led well at home. There's corruption in the home, and yet Samuel still appoints Joel and Abijah. Ah, verse 3 who did not follow his ways, didn't honor God, were willing to just let justice slide for the sake of a bit of extra cash at the weekend. 
Think back to that worship, that elation in Ebenezer chapter 7. Revival scenes. Perhaps Samuel assumes the next generation will just live off that. Hey, you've heard all these stories about what God did. That should surely be enough. You've seen the stone, but they've not been led to know it and experience it for themselves. There's a Chinese proverb that says, from paddy field to paddy field in three generations. In the same way that you could work your way out of poverty, become successful in one generation, and then in the next, allow yourself to just go back into poverty, and then by the third generation, poverty realized again, squandered opportunities all the way back to poverty. So too, can the family of God be lifted out of spiritual poverty in one generation, assume the gospel, the good news about Jesus in the next generation, and by the third generation, spiritual poverty. John Carson, pastor and theologian, he puts it this way, to assume the gospel in one generation is to lose it in the next. What am I driving at here? We can't lose sight of being intentional and investing in the next generation. Samuel has forgotten to prioritize God's call to take the commands of Deuteronomy 6 seriously. Impress them on your children, it says. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. In 30 years, the next generation had assumed the covenant promises of God, but not had them impressed, tattooed on their hearts. It's the same length of time as the recording of the book of Acts. What do we choose? The power of God and his gospel to inspire the next generation, a generation that will go further than us, that that would be our goal, that we would be so intentional about investing in the next generation that we would want for them to surpass us. Or we just assume the gospel. Just, just send them off to kids. They'll do it, program in there. Let's not bother at home. Rest of us don't need to worry. We don't need to be intentional with the kids, get to know them. Yes, you do. We say kids are not the warm-up, but that needs to be a church culture, not a church program. And that means you and I are responsible. That means it's more than about the decisions I make or Johnny makes or the ministry leads make or the kids team or the TOTS team. It means you're responsible too. If you regard this as your church, you're responsible too. So let's choose to make an impact in the next generation. Talking of the next generation, Andy and John. <laughs> um, these guys are going to come up. I want to just talk with these guys uh, quickly about something very exciting that's been going on in the background, something beautiful actually, and um, something I'm very excited to be able to share. So 
Guys, tell us Hi. what's been what's been going on. So it's fun being on the on the front side of this up here. Um, yeah, so a bit of family news for us. Um, as a family, the Penmans, over the past eighteen months, almost. Um, yeah. Mm, would have still been long without COVID, sadly. Um, have been going through the process of being approved for adoption. And uh, with a view to adopting um, a particular boy, whose name is Jack, who is eight and a half, and all things being well, will join our family in the next couple of weeks. So, yay. Which is fun. Yeah, so good. And we're like, we've been so excited about this and just praying for you guys and uh, anticipating this moment where everybody else could know because obviously there was good reason that we couldn't share that. Um, but now, tell us where you're at in terms of progression. So um, there's a big long process. You have to go through assessment and they ask you everything that they could possibly ever want to know. Um, it's very intrusive, and, but we've been through all of that. We've been to panel to say that we are now legally approved to be parents, which is handy for our children. Um, <laughs> and then we go through a matching panel. They've matched us with Jack as we had hoped. And then comes the kind of transition period, and we're in the middle of that just now. Um, we have our children's hearing on Friday, and that's when they kind of rubber stamp his move. Um, so he should be with us by Friday the 4th, again, all being well. Um, and then we start life with him. Mm. So exciting. So here is just one real practical question. As a church, we want to support you as best we can. We want to get behind you. We want to make an impact to the next generation, including through Jack. See what I did there? Um, so we want to know what is practically going to be very helpful to do on a Sunday morning, or not to do on a Sunday morning, or Sunday afternoon it'll be, when we, um, when we finally meet Jack. Yeah, so if we're talking uh, practicalities, I think we can summarize it by, guys, be cool. Um, let's play it cool. Uh, it's a massive upheaval for Jack. Um, it's a brand new city, it's a brand new life, it's a brand new family, um, it's a brand new school, it's a brand new everything for him. It's a brand new church. Um, he does go to church at the moment with us. Uh, current carers, which is fab. So, um, when he comes with us, um, we're not going to make a big song and dance about him. We're not going to kind of parade him up front and say, hey, this is Jack, he's around our family. He's just one of our kids, right? So, yeah, treat him like you treat our other three, <laughs> um, if that's going to be possible. Um, yeah, just, you know, if you're if you're kind of chatting to them, say hello, you know, introduce yourself, that's great. Um, we, we're going to kind of avoid kind of bombarding him with, you know, the, the kind of third degree about everything about his life. You'll just get to know him as he grows up. Um, there's no need to kind of rush that at the start. Um, I think that's the kind of, that's the kind of practical when he's here, when you see him at church. That'll be great because no doubt he will just be running around like a loon like our children do because that's our brand and that's what he's going to learn. So it's fine. Um, on a, you know, on kind of other levels for us, um, it goes without saying, but I'm saying it anyway, please pray for us, because, you know, this is a big change. Please pray for our children, because arguably it's an even bigger change for them. They've been great all the way along. They have been enthusiastic about it. God has been really just turning their hearts towards this and kind of getting them going along with 
what he's called us as a family to do, because it's not just Jen and I that are doing this. Um, they've got a massive part to play in this. And um, please kind of remember us and, and kind of keep in, keep in touch, because it can be quite an isolating thing to turn your whole life upside down, but like behind your closed door of your house. Um, so yeah, stay in touch, ask us how we're doing. Um, we might not be around as much, we might be, we might not, we don't know. Um, so it would be great to kind of really feel the, the kind of support of our, our church fam all around. That would be great. Brilliant. They've got it, right? It's good. Um, why don't we do this? Why don't we, why don't we pray? Um, so why don't we get on our feet? Just a sign of kind of unity with these guys. Say that we're with them. And uh, let's pray. Yeah, Father, I want to thank you so much for this heart uh, that we see in the Penmans to adopt Jack, uh, to have love and compassion for this boy, and to invite them, invite him into their home on a permanent basis, uh, making him a son in their home. What a beautiful gospel picture, and uh, Lord, we just we're so thankful for it. God help the Penmans in every possible way, from the most practical of things uh, to, Lord, even things like, how do, we, how do we help this boy integrate with us emotionally and spiritually and the rhythms of our life and all those sorts of things as well. So God, help them, uh, guide them, give them wisdom. But Lord, would you give us wisdom? Would you uh, help us to contribute in the ways that are appropriate and good and uh, Lord, would you give us wisdom in that as well? Uh, so Father, we're excited for what's to happen. We're so thankful for your hand in it. Um, I'm sure these guys will get to tell a fuller story in time to some people. Um, but uh, Lord, just we just thank you so much for it, just the way that your hand's been all over it. It's so clear that you're in this. And uh, God, we, we give you all the honor, all the praise in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. Brilliant. So if later on you have any prophetic words for these guys, any encouragements, um, do grab them and uh, let them know. That'd be great. All right. Verses four through nine. Choose your motive. Samuel's sons are clearly not fit. And so it makes sense that these tribal leaders gather around Samuel and say, come on, you've got to give us a king. That's solid thinking during a leadership crisis. Let's replace the void. Let's fill the void uh, with a new leader. High fives all around, right? Deuteronomy 17 even says that God would permit for the Israelites to have a king. He just needs to be the king the Lord your God chooses. Hmm. So why is Samuel so upset? Verse 6. Why does God say to Samuel that this isn't a rejection only of Samuel, this is a rejection of him? Verse 7. And why does God say that this is an act of choosing other gods over him. Verse 8. Seems a bit confusing. And the request almost quotes Deuteronomy 17. Almost verbatim. I think it's quite possible that they're actually trying to manipulate Samuel here with a request that looks spiritual. But really, they just want to have a king that looks like everybody else's king. 
all these successful nations around them. That's what it says, verse 5. So we can make a decision in our lives that looks godly when really we just want spiritual justification that makes us feel better about it. And I think that's what's going on. Have you ever made what looks to be a really godly decision, but really it's not? I remember um, going out to Canada as uh, I just finished studying. I wanted just to chill out for a while. And I was given these forms to fill in for the camp that I was going to serve at as a camp counselor. And I remember the questions, really just trying to get to the heart of why do I want to go and be a camp counselor? It's a Christian camp, so they were looking for some spiritual answers. But I have to tell you, what I put down, and the real reasons, now that I look back on it, were totally different. Oh, I just, I really want to help the kids, like, engage with God and, and, and really disciple and, and see them mature and give them the best opportunities in life as they start off in this journey. I wanted to go to Canada because it was exciting adventure, because I got to, my flights paid for. Um, I was a Scot going out to Canada who loved Jesus and was going to a Christian camp. And I was single at the time. I'm pretty sure that was part of my motivation. Now, that's obvious for me looking back. But at the time, I'm like, yeah, I just want to help the kids. It can be easy to fool ourselves. Our hearts deceive us. We need to be honest with ourselves and question our hearts, particularly around big decisions like that. Now, I'm not talking about like, you know, I'm in Lidl and do I buy Heinz tomato ketchup or do I buy Lidl's own Heinz all the way? But that's not the kind of question we're asking here, the decision that we're looking at. We're looking at big decisions. Now, the problem was not the decision then to ask for a king. That wasn't their problem. The desire for a king was not for the king to be God's king. That was the problem. The problem here was that they didn't want a king who was after God's own heart. They didn't want a king to unite them in worship to their true king. It's so easy to think that we're making the right decisions, doing the right things, and they could even be the right decisions, but the heart is wrong in it. We've got the wrong motive. And in the end, actually, all we want is just to be like everybody else. Idolatry is to choose another over God. It's as simple as that. It doesn't require rotten decisions. It just requires rotten hearts. You can make all the big declarations of God that you want. Say, oh, I'm all for you, Jesus. Jesus, take the wheel. I'm I'm. I'm going all in for you. But then if your heart and these big decisions isn't for him, it isn't worship, it isn't really truly motivated for his glory, you're not, you're not really being true to that commitment that you've made. All of humanity has a problem here. Our choices often reflect wrong motives, deceitful hearts. And it's like we see the Israelites doing again and again, isn't it? Our hearts deceive us. 
again and again. The motivation of our hearts is often out of our control. We need new hearts. Ones that won't constantly harden themselves to God and take us off in the wrong direction. But the very difficult thing about heart transplants is that we tend not to be very good at doing them ourselves. In fact, we can't. It's just not possible. We need a surgeon. We need a donor with a clean heart and a surgeon with the ability to offer us a transplant. Praise God, it is he who can give us a new heart. And it is only God who can do that. He even said that he would. To the prophets in Ezekiel, to Jeremiah, he said this, Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Once that heart transplant is done, we can then choose daily to reject the old heart and accept the new heart and live life to the glory of God by the power of his spirit. But where would this heart come from? Jonathan has the answers. I've reset the timer, Jonathan, because I went so over. Thanks very much. Okay. So, I'll, I'll just start by reading the next section. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage, your wine, and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you'll be his servants. And you'll cry out in that day because of your king that you've chosen. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. 
And Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone go back to your own town. Okay. Um, I think what's going on here is bigger than just this event. God's got a project and something is happening that's thwarting God's project or appears to be thwarting God's project. I think you might have gathered from the way that I read that Ian said at the beginning, worldly leadership is about taking. The word take occurs six times in that. He takes sons, he takes daughters, he takes their land, he takes the produce of their land, he takes their servants, he takes their animals. Now, the thing about this is that the one in power always takes... Now, what does he take? When he takes sons and daughters, these are gifts from God to these people. Psalm 127, verse 3 says, Children are indeed a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. So God has given you something, and this king is taking it from you. Then your land. Okay, and this is an agricultural society, so it's difficult for us to, to get a grip of how these people think. And so some of these things are, are principles that would apply to us, but obviously we live in a different concept, context. But their land and the produce of their land it says in Leviticus 27.30, in the, in the law that God has given them, it says a tithe, a tenth of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It's holy to the Lord. In verse 32 of the same chapter, it says, every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. So you can see here that what Samuel is saying is that this king will take the tenth that is due to God and will make it his own. What you're swapping here, this is why it's idolatry, what you're swapping here is God for a king. You're going to have this sort of master instead of me as your master. Okay? So, I think to also understand what's happening here is God, God is putting it very clearly the, the negative things that are happening. What we need to understand is what God's project is. What did he want to give these people? What had he done by taking them out of Egypt and taking them into the promised land, giving them a law? We often think that God of the Old Testament is different to the God of the New Testament. He's not. He's the same God. If he's compassionate in the New Testament, he's compassionate in the Old Testament. So God's law, very high level. I'm trying to be quick about this because it's such a huge topic. First of all, it was generous. You gave. You gave your tithe. You gave a tithe to the service of God and the, and the, the, the Levites in the, in the land. You also gave another tithe. But this tithe was actually a tithe that you'd spend on yourself by taking your family and going up to Jerusalem and having a big celebration every year. Okay? And then you would also give another tithe every third year, which would go towards the poor in the land. The law also showed compassion. 
You weren't allowed to take everything from your fields. You had to leave for those who were poor so that when people were destitute, they could get something. They wouldn't starve. There was compassion for people. You weren't allowed to take interest from poor people. You weren't allowed to charge profit on the food that you sold to poor people. Every seven years, God was interested in you having a rest. You didn't work. You let your fields go. And you just took food from the fields that grew by itself. Every seven, wouldn't you love to live in a society where we actually didn't, wouldn't in seven you have to do any work? Sometimes that's probably why some of our problems, we, you know, we manage, some of us manage one day in seven. One year in seven, a sabbatical. Only the pastor gets that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, the other key thing which God had given these people is called its security. It's their inheritance. It's an agricultural society. Your family had your land. Now, they had something called every seven years, there was a Sabbath year. After seven lots of Sabbath years, they had an extra Sabbath year. So that's 49 years. Well, let's take two years off this year. And they called it the year of Jubilee. Like, two years holiday is great. And incidentally, you don't have to tithe on, this, on the Sabbath years. You know. Two years off is great. But the really crucial thing about the year of Jubilee is that if you'd messed up during those years, if you'd had to sell your property and give it away, you would come back and it would be restored to you in that year. It's the great reset. Everything goes back in the box at the end of the day, and you start again, and you've got a fresh start. You have an inheritance that can't be taken away from you. Does that sound familiar? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, it says, you have got an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. God wanted these people to have something which cannot be taken away from them. Incidentally, the corollary of this is that you can't keep taking other people's inheritance and becoming stinking rich. Think of it like this way. You can't become a millionaire in God's economy, as he put it into this, into this society. How would that change our society if none of us had this thought that we could ever become more than comfortable there are many people in this society, even in their retirement pension schemes, have more than a million pounds. Okay? There is no limit to where you can go. You can become Jeff Bezos, maybe. You know? Maybe you can. And that keeps us going. And we, are f we, we fail to confront the fact that actually we're just chasing a dream. God didn't want his people to be worried about things like this. He wanted them to concentrate on being prosperous, working hard, being secure, but not becoming rich and powerful. Justice is the last thing I want to mention. The gospel does not, sorry, the Old Testament law says you mustn't be partial in the way you judge. Just because someone's rich, you don't give them better justice than somebody else. This is what these people were giving up. They are going to put themselves under a king who will choose to do different things. He will give their lands to his officials. He will show partiality to them. He'll take things from them. He will set rules up and laws up however he wants. 
He's, he's the king. God isn't the king anymore. So there's a transaction happening here. And the kicker is in the line where he says, and you'll be his servants. Actually, I should have put a different emphasis on it. And you will be his servants. God says when he's talking about the laws in Leviticus, about the Jubilee, what does he say? He says, even if you've lost your land and you are redeemed, you can't buy it back. He says, he and his children are to be released. The man who's lost his land, he and his children are to be released in the year of Jubilee for the Israelites belong to me as servants. They are my servants who I brought out of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. So what we should be saying is you'll be his servants is the way God is saying this. Maybe I'm putting my emphasis on this, but I think it's fair enough. You'll be his servants, not mine anymore. So for us, remember God's a jealous God. He uses the same tone about you. You're his servants. You belong to him. And he wants you. He won't share you with somebody else. He's brought you out of your Egypt, whatever that Egypt was. And he's brought you into a promised land. You can make these things too spiritual. God comes, brought the Israelites into a promised land, and then they had a fight to take hold of that promised land. You come into your promised land, and you will have a fight through your life to take every part of your life and make it captive to what God wants. Whether that's your career, the way you talk to people, your thoughts about politics, your thoughts about money, whatever it might be, the thoughts about how you speak to your neighbors, how you speak to your husband, how you speak to your wife, how you raise your children. All these things are parts of the land that you're going to take captive through your life. Back to the story. How did it end up? Well, we take a few years down the line. We've got, we've got King Saul. Didn't work out very well. King David seemed to be a great limit to his success. King Solomon, a glorious king, incredibly rich. And he dies about 90 years after the first king. And um, his son comes to the power. Now, I mentioned in Deuteronomy, they said about this king. What did he say about this king? He must not acquire many horses for himself, is what God said. He mustn't be a military powerful king. He must not have any many wives. And he must not be very rich. Well, Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Well, I can laugh about, oh, poor guy, you know. But can you think of that? That's a 1,000 women who are never going to have their own family and a relationship with somebody that's meaningful. Um, so, and obviously he was incredibly rich. So this glorious king of Israel, we read it and we think, wow, Solomon, wisest man who ever lived. This was the culmination of what God had said. In fact, when the people came to him to say about your son, to Rehoboam, his son, they said, they came to him and they said, look, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam went away. 
this jumped-up king's son who would have everything given to him on a, sil on a silver platter. He thought about it, chatted to his pals, and came back and said, Ah, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will lay on you an even heavier yoke. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. I don't think he read that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, did he? Um, so listen to that. Listen to where these people ended up. Harsh labor, heavy yoke, scourged with whips. Did God's word come through? Yes. Even though the king was glorious. Solomon was glorious. People suffered. So the irony of Ebenezer is that this is a time when this, this is a probably, this stone was put up and it is the last time that we can say, thus far, God has been with us. After this point, God is only with Israel through the king. Good king, God blesses. Bad king, doesn't go so well. Another bad king, another bad king, and you look at Israel's history until eventually they're thrown out of the land. So this transition here is a really key part for me. But Would we have been any different? They've lived three or four hundred years of oppression, failure, judges coming up, not getting anywhere. It's not straightforward to try and implement God's projects in your life. I know that I've failed in my life. Think of things where I've done things that I thought, well, that seems a spiritual one. I'm looking at the church, we've got a, a lot of Young people, students, you're going to go into jobs, you're going to start a career, you're going to start to have more and more, and there will be a constant, constant challenge for God's attention, for you to put things there which are more security. You want to have a king to guide you. Maybe your, maybe your career will be the thing that, you know, provides a bit of security as you go forward, which is what the Israelites were looking for. You know? Maybe it will be something else. I don't know. Maybe it will be marrying just the right person. Or maybe it will be... I don't know what it will be. But through your life, you will have things that come and want to pull you away from God, and it will not always be obvious. I remember there was a time in my life, I've never been a really career-oriented person, but being seen as a good professional, being, having people saying to me, Jonathan, that's really great. You're on this project. It's going to work. Seeing me get better and better jobs and things like that. Turning things down because actually, no, the money wasn't right there. You know? And instead of asking, does God want me to do that? That's happened in my life. Things have happened that brought me to where I am that are because of choices. I've got wrong priorities. I didn't put everything below God. Okay. As I expected, I'm running out of time. The last thing I want to say is that in some ways, you don't get a choice about whether you're a slave. These guys were either God's slave servants. I'm not sure the precise meaning of the word in, in the context. 
But you don't get a choice whether you're God's slave or the king's slave. New Testament says, says that, don't you know, when you offer to somebody, you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, your slaves are the ones you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or slaves to righteousness. We have the same choice. You cannot, you cannot not be a servant of someone. It's either the spirit of dependence on God, which is what Jesus lived when he was here, what he still lives or it's the spirit of independence from God where you choose your own priorities so I suppose well, actually that wasn't the last thing I needed to say <laughs> you realize that when God does things he doesn't do it through a system he didn't institute a system to do, with the, his rights he didn't institute a big government he didn't institute a market economy. He didn't go to the left or to the right. He didn't come from the top and go down. He went from the bottom. He went from the laws. He went from the way you treat people. He went from justice. He went from security. He went from inheritance. And he wanted to go up. Okay? God wants to work through people. God's kingdom is one that is in your heart. And these Israelites, unfortunately, after all this time of uh, trial, decided not to go that way. They wanted the kingdom from the top down. So it all went wrong. It went pear-shaped, and God, the people left the land hundreds and hundreds of years until eventually the true king came. And just listen to these words from the true king compared to the words of Rehoboam, who said, I will make your, your yoke even heavier. The true king said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. God wants our hearts. We need new hearts. And he provided them. In Hebrews, it talks about, talks, uh, quotes Jeremiah. It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declared the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I'll be their God and they will be my people. Father, I thank you that your way is totally different to everything that is around us. That every kingdom that's ever been is external to us, but your kingdom is in us and through us. Your word and your spirit live in our hearts. Father, I ask you to bless 
every single person in this room, every single person who's listening to this or seeing this later on, that you will bless them with your word in their hearts, your law in their minds, and just your spirit living through them. Father, we need your spirit. We need him to be real to us. Give us discernment so that we can see when the snares of this world want to pull us away from you and want to make us fail and return to the things that you have taken away from us. We thank you that you've taken all this away and you've, you've thrown it into the depth of the sea. Our sins have gone. We ask you to give us wisdom and to give us discernment and to keep us true to you. Amen.